0: it's estimated the death rate will be at least 1% for COVID-19. And so, you know, that represents a tenfold higher death rate in COVID-19 cases compared to influenza cases in the United States.
1: Meet Tanya Mura, an associate professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Idaho. Unlike many of us, Tanya knew about coronaviruses before the current pandemic. She has studied this family of viruses throughout her entire career. Although no one is an expert on the coronavirus that causes COVID 19 yet, Tanya has been following the outpouring of research on the virus, spread of the pandemic, and some of the misconceptions surrounding COVID 19. Welcome, everyone, to The Vandal Theory. Hi, everyone. My name is Lee Cooper, and I'm a science writer here at U of I, and your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research at the University of Idaho. Throughout this special season of the podcast, which is recorded and produced in my kitchen, we're going to meet U of I researchers who have insights into the current COVID-19 pandemic and its effects on Idaho and our Vandal family. Tanya and I discuss the specifics of the virus itself. Hi,
0: Tanya. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Leah. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, Tanya, I know that you have a background that overlaps a little bit with COVID-19. Can you tell us what you do and how it overlaps with our pandemic?
0: Sure. So I'm currently an associate professor in the Biological Sciences Department at the University of Idaho, and I'm also the assist- assistant director of the Institute for Modeling, Collaboration, and Innovation at UI. My research interest lies in uh, respiratory viruses and studying immune responses and disease pathogenesis in the lungs uh, during respiratory viral infection. Um My work with respiratory viruses really started in studying coronaviruses,
1: okay. I know most of us probably didn't know the word coronavirus when you know at thanksgiving christmas uh but now now it 's obviously something we hear every day uh You use plural does there's more than one coronavirus correct?
0: yes, so there's are actually a large number of coronaviruses. Um, There are coronaviruses that um, are of agriculture importance, so that infect cows, pigs, chickens. Our companion animals have their own coronaviruses, so cats and dogs. And then in humans, we've got, um, there are seven known coronaviruses that infect humans. And so the four of them are responsible for causing, you know, what we call common cold infections. And we get those, you know, pretty much every winter season the more pathogenic or severe coronaviruses which the SARS coronavirus 2 or SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19 is is one of those more severe pathogenic coronaviruses and it's related to the original SARS coronavirus that was emerged in in human populations in 2002 to 2003 and the MERS coronavirus or Middle East respiratory syndrome coronavirus that has an ongoing uh, outbreak in uh, in the Middle East.
1: So, kind of as a side note, uh, it dawned on me the other day that coronavirus or, or COVID nineteen is not named nineteen because it's the nineteenth coronavirus we've discovered. Why? Why the nineteen?
0: So, the nineteen in COVID nineteen is for two thousand nineteen, is when it first um, was recognized uh, in in China.
1: I feel like that's something that probably maybe hasn't come up. So, it was just one of those things that I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. Now, when you were listing all the different types of coronaviruses, one thing I noticed you did not mention was the flu. Are the flu and the coronavirus, other than both being viruses and and respiratory infections, uh, is there a reason why we should be comparing them?
0: Well, that's a great question. So influenza, that um, we we often call the flu, um, and and we also lump a lot of respiratory viruses into influenza-like disease. Um, there, we're comparing it to the disease. So, as you mentioned, uh, they both cause respiratory infections and so disease in the and symptoms in the respiratory tract. Um, but other than that, there are really completely different viruses. So, um, they differ genetically, um, they make completely different proteins. Our immune systems see them as, as completely different uh, viruses. Uh, and then, you know, as far as things we're talking about for uh, COVID-19. Uh, some of the things that differ are uh, the transmission rate for COVID-19 is much higher. Um, the death rate uh, is is higher, uh, and and again, our immune systems don't recognize COVID-19 because we've never seen this virus before. So you unpacked
1: a lot there. Uh, can we kind of delve a little bit more into transmission rates and death rates? What do those actually mean for us? And can can you kind of walk us through an example or something?
0: Yeah. So uh, the transmission rate, as I mentioned, for influenza and uh, SARS-CoV-2 are different. So with influenza, what we call the transmission rate is just above one, and with SARS-CoV-2, we're still Trying to figure this out, so there's a lot of estimates that have have been published recently, and it looks like it falls between a, a two and a three. Uh, and, and what this means in in the real world is that with a transmission rate of one, like influenza, each case, so each in person that's infected with influenza is expected to transmit the virus to approximately one other person. And so, if you go out five steps in transmission from the initial person that was infected, you have a total of five people that were infected. If you're looking at a, a transmission rate of, of two even for uh, for COVID-19, uh, when you take that out five steps, so each person passing the virus to two additional people after five steps, you've got 62 infections. Uh, and then this increases dramatically if you go up to transmission rate of three after five steps, you'd have 363 infected people. So um, a difference between one to two to three is actually a really huge difference in the total number of people that get infected.
1: So you say we're still trying to, to figure out whether it, it's two or three or, or or maybe even something different than that. What's kind of the barriers to, I mean, I know this is new, so you know we're still learning lots about it, but what are the barriers to really nailing down that number right
0: now? There's a few few reasons why it's it's hard to get at that number and why the estimates vary. Uh, one is is just not knowing uh, how many people are infected, and so um, testing has increased um, over the the past several weeks, but we're still really not capturing the reporting the full number of people that are infected. So one thing that's that's different about COVID-19 compared to the previous SARS outbreak is that there are a lot of asymptomatic infections. So people are infected, but they're not showing any symptoms. And so they're not likely to be tested and be counted as as cases at this point. So I want to get into
1: those asymptomatic cases pretty soon. Uh, But first, let's go back to, we were saying that you were saying the death rate is higher than the standard influenza as well. Um, What kind of numbers are we looking at so far?
0: Yeah. So for the the death rate, um, if you look at just the United States for influenza this past flu season, which is is just coming to a close, uh, the death rate is a little less than 0.1%. So 0.1%. Whereas the death rate for COVID-19, again, those numbers are in flux because we don't know the total number of cases, but it's estimated that as we get these numbers, you know, closer to reality, it's estimated the death rate will be at least one percent for COVID nineteen, and so you know that represents a tenfold higher death rate in COVID nineteen cases compared to influenza cases in the United States. Whew!
1: Jeez, it's some of the stuff you don't even know how to respond to it. It's a little intimidating sometimes to try and wrap your head all around it. Uh, Let's try and talk about, uh, you you said there's a lot of asymptomatic cases, but of course on the flip side, uh, you've also said the death rate is, 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 you know, roughly estimated at uh, 1%. Why such a wide response? Why don't all of our bodies react the same to these types of things?
0: Yes, that's a really great question and something that, you know, a lot of research is going to need to be done over the you know upcoming weeks, months, and years, really, to to get a handle on that. Um, but some some differences in how we respond uh, to viruses depends on our immune system, and so with these viruses, the coronaviruses, the severe ones especially, are good at downregulating kind of good immune responses uh, that we need to protect us from infection. Um, uh, just
1: to interrupt real quick. Downregulating. Uh, can you just break that down for me real quick?
0: So just decreasing or inhibiting those responses. Um, so they they block our ability to mount a good response uh, against the virus. Tricky guys. Yeah. <laughs> and then at the same time, and especially in the severe cases, what we see is they uh, the body reacts in in more of a hyper inflammation response. So you have you basically have swelling in the lungs where you have a lot of fluid and uh, cells coming into the lungs that are are clogging the airways and and making it hard to breathe. And so that kind of hyper inflammation response is it's not good for the lungs, especially. Um, And so people are going to differ in in how their immune systems respond if they go too far and and cause more inflammation than than just a, a controlled immune response, um, and then there's also uh, genetic differences uh, between people in you know how susceptible they are for the virus to infect. So viruses have to actually enter cells of the of the host in order to replicate, and so some people's cells might be less hospitable for for the virus to to replicate.
1: So you could just win the genetic lottery and and. Have cells with the the right. Is it better kind of shields, or is it just less
0: doors for the for the virus to enter through? Probably both. Um, but one one thing that I like the analogy of less doors for the virus to enter um, that does seem to play a role. So we know a lot of, actually from. Previous work with SARS virus and and new research on the the new um, COVID 19 virus that suggests or that that tells us a lot about how these viruses get into cells. And so that's probably a likely blocking point, like you said, if you win the genetic lottery and you have um, fewer of these doors for the virus to enter. Uh, and, and also it's, it's a great blocking point for developing therapeutics to stop the virus from entering cells. Uh,
1: so one of the things I wanted to ask you about was what, let's say I do get this and, and I don't have a a huge response. I'm, you know, sick for a couple of weeks, but, but, um, you know, I bounce back. Am I going to have Immunity to this for the rest of my life, for a couple of weeks? How does, do, do we
0: know anything about that yet? That's another great question. I'm, I'm definitely not going to make any promises either way. So, one thing we know about the coronaviruses that cause more of the common colds that I was talking about, immunity against them wanes over about a year or two. And so you can be reinfected by the same virus. Uh, after you know a year or, or or two after after having that with SARS coronavirus the, the original SARS um, immunity seems to be longer lived than the common cold coronaviruses uh, so it might depend on how severe of an infection you have and and so if you have a really more just a cold like infection or no symptoms immunity is likely uh, not going to be long term protective. Whereas if you have a more severe case, you, you might develop immunity for longer. Um, whether that's going to be for, for two years or lifelong immunity, uh, we really don't know at this point. Uh, and we don't know that for SARS either, as, as that virus, once it was um, stopped spreading around the world, it's, it's no longer spreading in human populations. So we don't know if people can be reinfected.
1: So talking about spreading, uh, can I ask you quickly about masks before we uh, head back to our, whatever we were doing before this, uh, cleaning kitchens, doing email, (laughs) teaching students. We've been told basically that it would be great if we could wear our masks, uh, just the little cotton ones, uh, whenever we're out in public uh, and not able to social distance. What are we protecting each other from? Are we protecting ourselves? Are we protecting the people next to us? are they helpful uh, in helping stop
0: viral spread? That's that's another great question. Um, so I guess I have a love-hate relationship with the masks. So viruses are small enough that if the virus is in the air and you're breathing in through the mask, the mask isn't going to stop the virus there. Um, but where it will help is um, hopefully in, in touching your face. So a lot of times these viruses are spread because you know somebody uh, wipes their nose or scratches their nose and gets virus on their hand and then touches a doorknob, for example, and then another person comes, touches that same doorknob, again, they scratch their nose and introduces the virus into, into their nose and, and they become infected. And so if the mask can prevent you from touching your face, it's kind of a reminder Um I think that's an important role the mask play, um, but in in that vein, people have to be really careful about washing their hands before they put the mask on, not touching the mask while it's on their face, and then washing their hands before they they take it off again. And and I think that's a little where where it gets a little tricky for people that are not used to wearing these masks. Is you know their glasses fog up, or they itch, or or what, and they're or they need to move it to the side to take a drink of their water bottle or whatever. And, um, and they're touching the mask too much. Uh, And so that's the kind of word of caution I would have.
1: Um, One last question. I mean, with all the being careful about, um, you know, using the hand sanitizer, washing your hands, not touching your face, wearing the masks, uh, we're we're supposed to be lessening the spread of the virus. Does it matter? You know, you pick up one, little virus versus a big sneeze right in front of you? So you get a whole bunch. Does it matter like the amount of virus you, you touch?
0: Yeah, that's, that's definitely the case. So um, that's what we call dose. So the dose of virus that enters your respiratory tract, um, there's a certain amount of virus that needs to land in your nose and, and access those cells um, in order for you to become infected. And so the, the less virus that enters at once, um, the lower your chances of actually getting infected. So, so certainly if we can lower our exposure, uh, even just to you know, smaller doses of the virus, then um, that will definitely slow down um, infection rates.
1: Well, then thank you so much
0: for, for giving me a call today and um, good luck with uh, finishing out the semester. Thank you. Thank you. Stay, uh, stay healthy and, and use your mask wisely.
1: Thank you. I have a wonderful Star Wars one that I sewed. It's, one. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> if you found the intricacies of COVID-19 interesting, I think you'll enjoy learning about a few other U of I research projects. University of Idaho faculty are partnering with our sister institutions in the region to model intervention strategies across Idaho during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Idaho Department of Health and Welfare and Governor Brad Little's Coronavirus Task Force have used the models to make health care decisions. According to fire scientist Lita Kobziar, wildfire smoke isn't sterile. Kobziar used flying drones and vacuumed air into filters to capture microbes found in smoke. Her team found more diversity of bacteria and fungi in the smoky air than in non-smoky air. They also found the bigger the fire, the more microbes the smoke carried. Our own Department of Curriculum and Instruction is partnering with Google to produce teachers who are ready-to-use technology in the classroom. The project integrates Google training materials into existing coursework to help future educators enhance their teaching, get organized, and save time using the Core-G Suite tools commonly found in K-12 classrooms. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to the Vandal Theory. You can check out our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory, For more details about Tanya's work, read our show notes and email me with comments. Most importantly, you can subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. Rate and review us, too. We've loved hearing from our listeners, and we really appreciate your support. And help spread the word about the great research being done at U of I by telling your friends and family about the podcast. I'm Lee Cooper, and thanks for joining me.